here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. Hello and welcome to another live edition of the Under the Dome podcast. I am your host, Ben Belden. I am solo once again today, so um, only my voice that you'll be hearing. Hopefully you enjoy it. I've got a lot that I want to talk about as far as Notre Dame and Ball State is concerned. But before I do that, let's talk about the things that I'm excited about, (laughs) and that is some of the new things that we have going on over at the Under the Dome podcast. So first of all, like I said, I am your host, Ben Belden. You can find me on Twitter at bbelden330. Make sure you follow the podcast Twitter as well. It's a good landing spot for all of your needs as far as finding where the podcast is. That Twitter handle is at under the dome underscore ND. And another thing that I'm really excited about that I've got up and running now, for those of you who are listeners from the Golden Domer Daily Days Obviously, you've known that Golden Domer Daily and Slap the Sign merged, which is why I'm now at Slap the Sign. But I brought back the old website, repurposed it, I suppose. Uh, new domain name, underthedomend.com is that domain name. So if you go over to there, um, it's a real good landing spot. That and the Twitter page, whatever you're more comfortable with. And if you want to listen to our shows live on Spreaker or whatever, it's very easy to go to underthedomend.com. And you can find all of the links to all of the places that we are located across the web and all of that going forward. Another thing that I'm excited about is that as we continue to grow here with the podcast, we're going to be doing some more things with trying to improve the live aspect of things, I suppose you could say. Um, For that reason, we're going to be doing some things on Facebook Live, YouTube Live and things. We've created a YouTube channel All of the website and everything is going to be great for being, like I say, another landing spot where you can go. And if we're live, you can either listen to find a place to listen to the audio. You can interact with us on YouTube or Facebook Live, that type of thing. I'm excited for that as well. So if you haven't, um, and I'm sure you haven't because it's brand new, but go on over to underthedomend.com. Bookmark that website for me. Like I say, it's a great landing spot for, for everything. If you're trying to find this podcast um, you know, that that's where you should go. So like I say, we've got some things cooked up where we're going to incorporate some video and some other types of things going on. So, and I'm excited about that. I was trying out some things, but we're in kind of the testing stage right now, maybe by mid season, as we improve the setup and things, then, uh, we'll, we'll be, uh, doing a lot more live stuff video wise, bringing on guests and that type of thing. Like I say, for, for now, I am the only guy you got here and that's okay. But soon we will be bringing back some of the other guests over at Slab the Sign and all of that, which reminds me, make sure you slap, 
yeah, make sure you slap the sign and make sure you check out slapthesign.com and at slapthesign on Twitter as well. So I'm going to be right back with some Ball State Notre Dame content. But before I do that, here's a nice little message from one of our sponsors. The Under the Dome podcast is thankful to the great people at Electrosound who graciously donated audio equipment and accessories to help make this podcast sound awesome. If you're in the market for audio consulting, the purchasing or renting of equipment, or any other audio needs, make sure that you check out their website at electrosound.com. That's E-L-E-C-T-R-I sound.com. All right, so I'm back. Also, I forgot to mention at the top, so I'll mention it now. We've got a voicemail line that a couple of you are uh, starting to utilize, which I really enjoy. And hopefully as this thing continues to grow, and it has over the last couple of weeks, people continue to utilize that voicemail line. I believe on the last podcast I butchered the number because I tried to do it off the top of my head. I've since memorized the number. The number is 612. I lied. The number is 812 812- Six two four fifty two seventy six, and that's my final answer. So, if you have any type of things that you want to say on the podcast, I screen them beforehand. I use them on the podcast. Like I say, eventually there will be some more live interaction going on here. But for right now, the voicemail is what we got. Uh, call that number. You can. It'll take you directly to a voicemail without even ringing. I'll get it. I'll play it on the podcast, and you know we can phrase some things um, as questions in that regard that way. So. That being said, let's talk about Notre Dame Ball State, and let's talk about the hot-button issue that, well, Brandon Wimbush didn't play quite up to some people's expectations. So let me, let me actually rewind before we start talking about Brandon Wimbush and just kind of go over what I'm feeling in regards to this game in general. So if you're looking for a gloom and doom podcast talking about how terrible Notre Dame played and how the sky is falling and... We're not going to ever live up to the likes of the Alabamas and Clemsons and Ohio States of the world. And if you're looking for a really pessimistic podcast, you might as well just turn this one off now. So if you are listening for a reason to be excited, um, a different perspective from what you've probably heard about this Notre Dame Ball State game thus far, then you're in the right place. Because, you know, I'm an apologist to a certain extent, but, you know... I do think that generally the truth is somewhere in the middle, and hopefully what I'm going to do during this podcast is sort of just demonstrate the way that the, I don't know, the Twitter sphere and the media and um, not necessarily the media, that's not fair, but just how perception sometimes isn't exactly 100% correct. Um, so I, I know a lot of people are really soured about Notre Dame given you know what went on on Saturday. And, uh, you know, I, I understand that certainly it wasn't the type of performance you would expect. It doesn't give a whole lot of reason for optimism, but like I say, I'm here to tell you that there's still reason to think that this Notre Dame team is better than they performed on Saturday and can compete with the best of the best going forward. I, I try to stay away from like hot take type things and say that this team is going to, compete for the college football playoff but I I just I mean and I say this all the time it depends on what your definition of compete is all that being said let's let's talk about the game real quick so 
I want to start with Brandon Wimbush, and I want to clarify some comments I've made before, my feelings now, and, and just some things going forward. So Brandon actually had, if you take away, I don't know, to put a number on it, five or six just very questionable plays and throws, then, you know, I thought Brandon actually played relatively well for what the game plan was, and... I obviously have some questions about that game plan, and I have some questions about Brandon as well. But, you know, I think it's funny that only at Notre Dame can we have a quarterback pass for, I believe it was 297 yards, somewhere in the 50s in completion percentage, and that actually kind of dwindled as the game went on. But only at Notre Dame can we have a quarterback put up those types of numbers and people start talking about how bad of a passer he is. And I I get it. I I understand that sometimes some of those numbers are empty and the other big number from Saturday is the three interceptions that he threw. And I get that as well. But, you know, there's a reason why Brandon Wimbush is the quarterback and it's because he's got physical tools that are enticing. And he can throw the ball a mile and he throws the deep ball real well and he can move the sticks with his feet and he can improvise and he can do certain things that just, you know, you look at him and you watch him play and once in a while he shows you things. It's like, wow, that was really impressive. Other times you're screaming at your TV. Other times you're wondering how in the world could you possibly not see what you're throwing to? How could you also possibly not see a receiver so wide open that you didn't even glance at? What's the problem here? And I get those things, and that's okay. Like I said earlier at the top of the show, I'm an apologist about a lot of things. Let me also now kind of flip the script a little bit and say that, you know, of all the things I'm an an apologist for, I feel less strongly about the play of Brandon Wimbush. Um, You know, I thought, and I tweeted from the Slap the Sign Twitter, if you were looking for my reactions during games, that's where you can find them. I tweeted that I I wouldn't I think it was 14 to 6 and I wouldn't mind if Ian Book had gotten a drive or two to just sort of see what was going on. Here's the difference between Brandon and Ian Book. Okay? If the game plan dictates at any point during the game that what you want to do is have your quarterback sit back, survey the field and deliver a, an accurate pass, you know, I think you want Ian Book in that situation. But you know, that also limits what you can do offensively. Yeah, and that's just, I mean, physically, Ian Book is not the same as Brandon Wimbush. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So I think the main difference, okay, let me also put this out there, that Brandon Wimbush, a lot of people, you know, a lot of it was made about his accuracy issues. And people are still talking about his accuracy issues. There weren't accuracy issues against Ball State. There was a play or two where he missed a receiver. There was a play or two where you just kind of were like, huh? But, you know, with Brandon Wimbush as your quarterback, you're going to live with those types of things because he's also going to improvise and he's going to do things like against Michigan run for 22 yards on third and 16. So, you know, the good comes with the bad and you sort of learn to deal with it. But, you know, my perspective was that the difference between Brandon Wimbush and Ian Book is that if you're asking your quarterback to read the field quickly, to get quickly 
through progressions, which I think is Brandon's biggest issue is that he has an idea of how the play is supposed to look. And if the defense gives him the look that he's expecting when he has identified what he's looking at at the line of scrimmage, then that's the type of thing that he's going to excel. That's the type of situation that he's going to excel. If you're looking for somebody who is going to look at the defense ahead of time, get an idea of what the defense is going to do, but then when the ball reaches his hands and you look up and you see that the defense hasn't done exactly what you expect and you need that guy to get through his progressions quicker and decisively make a throw, that's Ian Book. If you want a guy that is going to, you know, it doesn't necessarily even matter (laughs) what the defense is going to give you, and you're going to run a play where you're going to flood a zone or even flood, you know, have a guy beat somebody man-to-man, and you want somebody to put a good, accurate deep ball in there, uh, maybe on the move after moving the pocket a little bit, that's Brandon Wimbush. And certainly in book can do some of those things well, and there's some overlap between those two things. But, you know, I just think that, the way that the game was going, the way that Ball State was sort of getting to Brandon a little bit, although I'm going to talk about the offensive line here in a second. Um, it just felt like maybe what you would want would be Ian Book to sit back, survey a little bit, and see if we could ignite this offense just a little bit. That's not the direction Brian Kelly went. And, you know, I don't actually even have a problem with Brian Kelly sticking to his guns and saying, you know, Ian Book's going to, and now I'm, now I'm making this slip. Now Brandon Wimbush is going to just work this out. We got to play Brandon Wimbush because he has to work this out. And I don't have a problem with Brian Kelly. I mean, he hasn't said that, but that seems to be the stubbornness to which he is, I guess, um, exuding given this quarterback situation. So, you know, did Brandon Wimbush play the best game no, absolutely not. I mean, two inter- two of those interceptions were bad. There were two or three other throws that could have, in certain cases, should have been interceptions that were bad. But there were also times where, you know, he comes out in the second half and the first drive, six-play drive, he's three for three touchdown. Next drive, he hits Miles Boykin on a crossing route and then, unfortunately, pass tipped two times interception not really his fault kind of a fluke play good play by the defense you certainly just kind of in a, to a certain extent write it off but you know the story with this Notre Dame game on Saturday was not overly flat play necessarily it wasn't apathy I don't think it wasn't that Ball State came into this game and took Notre Dame's talent away It's not that Notre Dame didn't have some of the answers for what Ball State was going to do. It was none of. It's not that the quarterback couldn't hit a receiver to save his life. It's not that there weren't holes to run through because there were at times. It's not any of that stuff. It's that Notre Dame, for whatever reason, human nature. After hearing all summer how great Michigan was going to be and how sharp they were going to have to be to play Michigan and beat them and how, you know, there's going to be this Michigan game followed by a couple gimmies afterwards that they can, you know, if they can just pass Michigan with a win that they can propel themselves into the talk about the college football playoff, all of that. You you don't think players heard that 
Absolutely, they did. Absolutely, human nature took over. And yeah, there was a certain degree of, you know, maybe they weren't quite as sharp. And maybe, you know, a couple guys were thinking like, okay, so I just played this hard knock type of game against Michigan. And, you know, it's going to be great. I'm going to come out here. I'm going to score a couple times. And then I'm not even going to play the second half. And I'm going to cheer on my guys in the second half who are younger than me, the Phil Yurkoviches of the world. And I never say his name right. I guess it's Jerkovic. Um, so someone corrected me about that the other day. I'm probably going to mispronounce it all the time and I guess I care, but, and I'll try to do better, but you don't need to, I I pretty well know that I'm making an error, but anyway, (laughs) so I digress. The point though, is that Notre Dame had some things going well for him in this game, but they just couldn't string it together for, for a variety of weird reasons. Sometimes it was a good play by ball state and sometimes teams are going to make good plays against you. And sometimes teams are just going to come in and play loose against Notre Dame because it's Notre Dame and they're supposed to lose. And that's exactly what happened against Ball State. So I want to take um, I, I, I want to take you through some game notes that I wrote down as I watched, especially like the first half. So I'm not going to go through the entire game because, I mean, I suppose some podcasts, you know, might sit and read game notes to you uh, throughout the time. But, you know, that's that's not what I'm going to do. But before I do that, I guess, and I, I have a tendency to get ahead of myself, you know, the other narrative is that the offensive line was absolutely manhandled by Ball State. And, you know, as I've said on this podcast already, the truth is kind of in the middle between, you know, that gloom and doom, the offensive line looked terrible versus, you know, they're actually okay. <laughs> I'm here more towards the side to tell you that the offensive line is actually all right there are some issues on the offensive line certainly the issues aren't talent issues necessarily in most cases the issues are the offensive line getting a cohesion understanding you know different looks and being able to pick up blitzes and and that type of thing and who's getting what guy and how the protection is supposed to work and that type of situation a lot of that's going to come as the season goes on all right um the offensive line didn't get manhandled um, Ball State gave them some different looks, some stunts, some blitzes that were a little bit different that they probably haven't seen before, to be honest with you, and didn't always handle perfectly. But it was rare in this game where there was a four-man rush for Ball State and they're putting all kinds of pressure on the quarterback. That's just not really what happened. And um, I, like I say, um, I'm a little bit distracted because my phone just started ringing. Didn't really realize that was going to happen. So my apologies for that. But again, you know, the truth is in the middle. And so I'm going to go with, um, I don't know. I'm going to go and I'm going to go through what I saw from the offensive line, what I saw from Brandon Wimbush. And I'm sort of going to demonstrate that, like I say, there's a certain degree of spin that, that goes here. And, you know, you can spin it one of two ways. I'm going to spin it more towards the positive side and then you can sort of decide, you know, between the gloom and doom and how I'm going to put it. Like I say, it's really kind of going to be somewhere in the middle. So that being said, I want to get one more thing out of the way. You know, there's no team that's ever won a national championship that hasn't survived a clunker at some point. Okay. I'm not saying Notre Dame is going to go win a national championship, but I'm saying that you know throughout college football history, it's pretty well par for the course that the team that wins a national championship either survives a game where they played really, really bad 
and you can even think back to the year Notre Dame played in the national championship, having to survive Pittsburgh, um, or they lost a game and still won the national championship, especially if the game was lost early. I think back to 2015 and how Ohio State lost to Virginia Tech at home, and Virginia Tech turned out actually to not even be that good that year. Um, I, I remember this all the time because I'm a noted Ohio State hater that Virginia Tech lost a game later that year where the final score was 6-3. to three. And I believe that was to Wake Forest. Um, so, like I say, you know, Notre Dame is not the first really good team that's going to lay a clunker against a bad team. Let's just, to a certain extent, be happy that they won the clunker that they laid. And I would really expect, honestly, as Vandy comes to town next next week, that this is going to be a case where... I would expect that Notre Dame comes out and delivers a really good, solid performance against Vandy. And the playbook is open to a point where, and I know Brandon Wimbush and Brian Kelly said that this was not the case, but I really do think to a very large extent that Notre Dame said, we're going to work on some of our drop back passes. We're not going to have Brandon run as much. We don't want to get him dinged against a lesser opponent. I just, I think, you know, even though they say that, I just... I just don't think that's the case. I don't know that they're being exactly truthful. So anyway, without further ado, and I'm going to quickly go through and um, go through some of my observations. And like I say, then I want to get to some, a couple of voicemails and then we'll get out of here. So starting in the first quarter. So really throughout the first half, throughout the first quarter in general, to me, what I saw was that there were two offensive plays, run plays that went for negative yardage that really killed Notre Dame two, And I'm serious. So we know how the game started. Brandon Wimbush dropped back pass, really good read, really good play call. Um, real easy read. I also might add if they take the bubble, Oh, they're going to take over the top away. If they take the bubble away from miles Boykin, then you throw it to Chris Fink, which is what happened. They take Chris Fink away. You throw the bubble to miles Boykin and there were, and then we're off and running. So, First play, great. Then there, then Jafar Armstrong gashes him 42 yards down to the four or five yard line. Three plays later, he's running in one yard touchdown. Okay. Here's the other thing that I'm going to say that I didn't even say. People talk about how bad the offensive line was. We still rush for three touchdowns and we still would have run for almost 140, 150 type of yards because, you know, Brandon Wimbush, I believe, went for a minus 20 overall in the game which, and, you know, he ran for, maybe he went for a minus 10. So, but he lost about 30 yards due to sacks, I guess is what what I'm trying to spit out here. So, you know, numbers only tell so much of the story as well. But Notre Dame goes up seven to nothing. Obviously, Ball State runs 19 plays, kicks a field goal, they get the ball back. Okay, so first play on their second possession, they run for five yards, they go to a second and five outside zone on the second drive, and Ball State is just slanting right to where they're trying to run the football. So here's the other thing I have to say. You know, certain times a defense is just going to call the right play that's just going to blow up the play that you have prepared. It's just going to happen. And sometimes it's reliant on an audible to get out of it. Sometimes you can't tell. It's okay. Okay? So sometimes the defense is just going to have your number on a play. There's not going to be, you know, you could put 
a high school football team out there against Notre Dame, they'd probably get a tackle for loss or two just because they got had the perfect play call on at the perfect time. It's all right. That happened on, on second and five. Notre Dame's behind the sticks a little bit. Uh, so they go from second and five to second and or third and eight or so and incomplete pass. All right. Next possession after Ball State punts it back to him. Second and seven. They're running a pull and trap play. Tommy Kramer comes across, um, pulls from his right guard position. He's about to, he's going to go and he's going to kick out or get up to a linebacker. But again, Ball State has the perfect play call, which was a blitz by the linebacker to the exact right hole where they were pulling and trapping. And they blow the play up for three yard loss. They go to third and eight. Then right after that's a play where, um, I think Brandon actually had Claypool open uh, potentially, at least an opportunity to make a play, and he got his arm hit, and the ball was um, came out short. Other than that, you know, throughout the first quarter, it was a fairly clean offensive line play for the int- the duration of the quarter. Now, the second quarter is a little bit of a different story. Um, you know, there was a big third down play, the one where they're going in, and it was shortly before Justin Yoon kicked and missed a field goal. Tommy Kramer, right guard, gets completely confused on a stunt play. Um, I think Ball State only brought four or five guys, but basically the guy over Tommy Kramer rushed across Kramer's face towards the center. Um, He was eventually picked up by Sam Mustafer, the guy who was either over top of or just to the left of Sam Mustafer. The center loops around. Tommy Kramer didn't realize that was happening. It was good timing by the Ball State defense. Kramer doesn't see him. He's unevaded to the quarterback, and Brandon just missed on a throw to Miles Boykin on a play that I think, honestly, that Boykin should have caught the pass. Regardless, he got both hands on it. Fourth down came up next, and he actually hit Claypool on the next uh, on the next fourth down conversion. But what happens after that is something that I think is more symptomatic of you know who we have playing running back, and you know the type of you know the type of guys that we have at the running back position. Sometimes, and Tony Jones is better at this because he's a running back by trade. Um, he's better at this than Jafar Armstrong. But certain times, you know, there will be times where it's okay for a runner to just get behind those guys and just push the pile for two, two and a half, three yards. Notre Dame running backs, Jafar Armstrong doesn't really know how to do that just yet. It'll come through his running back training. Tony Jones just does it a little bit. But shortly after that, after that fourth down completion, the clay pull that kept the sticks moving on the same drive that I've been talking about, Tony Jones is in there. He's kind of stuffed as he runs uh, to the left. And instead of just pushing the pile for two yards and making it third and six, he decides to do some weird circle around play, loses five yards. Next thing you know, it's third and 13, and Notre Dame's way behind the sticks. Which would you rather have, third and six, third and 13? Okay, so this is what I'm saying. Notre Dame, to a certain extent, just didn't make the smart play um, against Ball State. And I think a lot of that is thinking, well, I'm playing against Ball State. I should be able to just reverse field and make a big play and get yards and that type of thing. And Brandon Wimbush certainly has that in him as well. But that's not what happened. Eventually, you know, incomplete pass on third down. Justin Yoon tries a, uh, a long field goal and it misses. And actually, I believe that Brandon Wimbush was sacked on the next play on one of those plays where he ran around for 10 seconds doing who knows what instead of throwing the football away. So um, later on in the half, I have written down here that Alex Bars just fails to pick up a delayed blitz. Again, you know, another issue where I think that 
it wasn't a talent error. It wasn't that Ball State did something, you know, completely out of the ordinary. It wasn't an, an issue where, you know, Notre Dame just didn't have the answer. It was a play where Alex Bars, you probably expect a little bit more out of him, but you're going to say to him in the film room on set on, you know, well, today and at practice on Monday that, hey, teams are going to do that. They, they see that we have struggled with this. We got to get better offensive line wise, picking up some of these stunts, picking up some of these delayed blitzes from the linebacker. Um, literally, it was a play where Brian or where Alex Bars dr- kicks back, looks to his right, takes his eye off of, you know, the linebacker for a second and the linebacker just scoots right past him flushes Wimbush out of the pocket and, uh, you know, disrupts the timing of the play. Um, there were plays throughout the game, you know, and I don't know that, and I'm going to actually kind of stop going through some of these notes because the story is this, you know, good four or five yard rush mistake by quarterback mistake by a running back mistake by a drop pass, whatever. And all of a sudden you're behind the sticks there. There was a nice, you know, run play by, I believe it was Jafar Armstrong on a sweep. He picks up eight yards, but Robert Hainsey dove at the lineman's uh, or by at the linebackers' legs, and he gets called for a fifteen-yard penalty that put Notre Dame behind the sticks. You know, second and it was t- second and twenty, and then actually, you know, Notre Dame got out of that by hitting Jafar Armstrong on a twenty-three-yard pass after that, which was a positive. Um, there were good plays out there. And there were plays where we just missed that, you know, this game honestly felt like a game of inches and it just seemed over and over like Notre Dame wasn't the, the ball didn't bounce Notre Dame's way. Their fortune wasn't good because to a certain extent they weren't putting themselves in a position to take advantage of these types of things. There's a play late in the first half, Avery Davis, he gets a sweep, an outside zone to the left and he, if he cuts it up, he gets six or seven yards. He decides to try to bounce it. He gets one. Very next play, Notre Dame runs my favorite play that they ran all game. Um, and they fake jet sweep right to Jafar Armstrong. Avery Davis runs a seam route from out of the backfield. Brandon Wimbush puts it right on him. Avery Davis stops running to a certain extent right there. Not necessarily comfortable as a receiver yet. Ball goes right through his hands. It's either a touchdown or a first and goal on that play. Um, and I can't remember exactly what happened as far as the denouement of that drive, but I don't, but Notre Dame didn't score a touchdown. Let's put it that way. Um, so, um, and actually I do remember now they turned it over on downs instead of getting some sort of a points. So, you know, hopefully you can kind of see that from certain degree to a certain degree of evidence that Notre Dame, you know, they, there were plays there that could have transformed this game from a 26 to 14 win to a, did I say 26 to 14, 24 to 16 win to, you know, something along the lines of 41 to 16, something along those lines. And, you know, if it was a 25 point game, a 25 point win, I don't think people are quite so gloom and doom today. And the narrative is a lot different. So anyway, I want to get to a couple of voicemails from listeners. Um, Like I say, we do this new voicemail feature 
here on this podcast. It's a lot of fun. I get to talk to some people. And like I say, as we as we go forward, we're going to do some more things where there's going to be more live interaction, whether you are listening on an app and typing in a question, whether you are watching on YouTube, typing in a question, whatever, or maybe and I'm working on this, you know, calling in to the live show and actually having your voice on the live show. So we will see. But for now, here's a voicemail. Um, and um, this one talks a little bit about the offensive line. Ben, how you doing? This is Squid from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. A lot of topics I'm sure everyone else is going to repeat, but the one question I want to address is the offensive line. Above everything else I saw in that game, including Wimbush and the defense, playing well, then giving up 19-play drives. The offensive line was the biggest red flag to me. Uh, it was one thing going up against uh, Winkovich and the Michigan defense, but this is a game they should have dominated, blown them off the ball. I see this as a huge red flag. How about you? Let me know. Thanks. Yeah, Squid, so thanks for your call, by the way. Squid is a first-time caller to the show, and we hope that he calls back again. Um you know, I, I sort of answered the question to a certain extent. I'll elaborate a little bit here in a second. But, you know, I've talked about the offensive line at length. Here's the other thing that I failed to, to mention earlier, and I think that, you know, what Squid said there um, helped me remember this, I guess. So Notre Dame doesn't have necessarily the type of offensive blocking scheme that they're going to take Quentin – Nelson out of the equation for a second, but pretend he never played at Notre Dame. Notre Dame isn't running their offensive scheme to necessarily just blow guys off the ball and have, you know, push guys out of the back of the end zone the way that we've seen guys like Quentin Nelson do in years past. And that's okay. You can still be an effective line without having people be the mall cops that Nelson and McGlinchey were last year. But what I will say is where Notre Dame is going to, I guess, be able to create some creases for running backs on the offensive line is by schematics, by technique, by inviting a defender a certain way, setting up your defender, and then out leveraging him. Um, Notre Dame runs a lot of like those outside zone type plays where, you know, everybody on the offense, um, you know, the four guys towards the side that the play is going, take a step to the right and then up the field a step. And they're trying to, instead of necessarily like run or push the defensive line back, they're trying to use the defensive lines momentum against them, you know, push them out wide to create cutback lanes, uh, if they slant the other direction, then, you know, you push them back down inside to get your runner to the edge, create lanes that way. They're not necessarily trying to just, you know, go, I don't know, jousting, battering ram straight ahead and maul people that way necessarily. Do they certainly run some plays where they pull a couple, a guard, a guard in a center, both guards, whatever the situation is and try to get out in front of people and take people out. Absolutely. But I would say for the most part, they're trying to run that inside outside zone and create lanes for, you know, running backs to hit on cutbacks and that type of thing. You know, I, I grew up, um, you know, whenever I, I think back to my middle school football days 
every play had a hole that the runner was supposed to go to. And that's a little bit old school. Um, it, you know, things have sort of changed to a little bit. The new era is to just kind of run this zone and say, you know, outside zone, right. You know, and that's where everybody as an offensive line cohesively takes a step to the right. They work their way up to the field to, you know, try to create those, I don't know, those creases. And then basically it's the running back's job to elude a linebacker, get to the second level and, you know, go from there. I will say that I was actually impressed with Ball State's defensive line. I mean, they're a little bit undersized, but they use their quickness really well. And while they weren't necessarily putting a lot of guys in the box at the snap, um, usually it was, you know, five or six. Sometimes a seventh guy was in the box. They would, they did have those safeties crashing down an awful lot. It, it definitely played a part into why Notre Dame couldn't run the ball as effectively as they could. Like I say, and it's no one's fault necessarily other than, you know, they were trying, they were playing Notre Dame to put together a consistent drive. And Notre Dame just wasn't able to because they can repeatedly shot themselves in the foot. They'll have to clean it up certainly as they move forward. But anyway, again, squid, uh, thank you for the question. I appreciate it. And next we have another call from Kyle from Gloucester, Massachusetts. Kyle's a uh, third time caller now and Kyle keep calling back. But anyway, um, he's going to talk about, uh, the quarterback and a couple other things, and then I'll answer the question and then we'll get out of here. So here's Kyle's voicemail. Hey, Ben, I did a long-winded message. I'm going to consolidate it to a cleaner message right now. Um, I didn't call him last night because I was frustrated, but I'm going to call him this morning. Um, I feel like my emotions have settled a little bit. But a couple of things that make me nervous, and this this contradicts the, the positive voicemail I left last week for, for Brian Kelly and the state and the health of the Irish program is, is what good programs get their teams to play up every single week. We still, it's the same story. We still don't do that. That makes me really nervous. Um, I do feel that when the Stanford and Vanderbilt and the USC's, when all those games come, you know, Notre Dame will play up. But it, it, it almost contradicts the, the, the belief that the program is unbelievably healthy because that shouldn't be a problem. But number two, this one's just a head scratcher, but I understand because the data shows it now that Brian Kelly was supposed to be the quarterback whisperer. He did unbelievable things at, at all stops along the way. Um, you know, Grand Valley, uh, Central Michigan, and, and he did he worked wonders with Tony Pike at, at Cincinnati. But none of his quarterbacks developed. And I'm just I'm wondering if those the quarterback the quarterback development hinders to blow out the teams you should blow out because when 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 Wimberg starts to to wane and he's inaccurate and he runs around the pocket like uh, Johnny Unitas or, or uh, Archie Manning or whatever, like I think that that hinders all momentum you have in those games, and you have to capitalize on those moments. Um, and because of its team, the emotion, emotional level team comes back down, and then we let the ball states of the world or, you know, you, you the, the South Floridas of the world or whatever, right, stick around in games that they shouldn't. So do I think, again, do I think the program's going in the right direction? I do. Do I think the health of the program, the overall health, is closer to an Alabama than not? I do. I actually do, and I and, I feel positive about those things, and I don't want to contradict myself completely. But, look, the proof is in the pudding. Quarterback development and playing up in the big games, very those things should be easy now, and they're not, and I don't know why. And, you know, calling the, the voice my opinion, I mean, I'm curious on your thoughts, and it's, those two things um, go hand in hand. So thanks for having me. 
Kyle, thanks again for the call. Um, we really appreciate you utilizing this voicemail line, setting a precedent for others to do as well. Um, I'm going to answer your question as concisely as I can. You know, you mentioned that good teams don't play down to the competition. To a certain, I get where you're coming from, and, and certainly in a perfect world, that's that's exactly right. I mean, you don't see other teams, the Clemsons, the Ohio States, the Alabamas, necessarily playing down the way Notre Dame has traditionally done. However, I, I mean, let's lose use Clemson for an example. You know, I remember, um, and I think it was probably two years ago at this point. Um, sitting at Brothers Bar in South Bend uh, ahead of a Notre Dame game against I don't remember who and watching a Clemson game against North Carolina State. The North Carolina State had a chippy field goal at the end of regulation that would have won the game. They missed, and Clemson got away and, and won that game. And North Carolina State was not good that year. That was the year. Uh, that was not last season. That was the year before. North Carolina State, not good. Um, I mentioned Ohio State playing a clunker against uh, against um, Virginia Tech at the top of the show. I use Ohio State as kind of a barometer a lot because, to be honest, I, I live in Ohio, and it's easy to for me to follow Ohio State and know what they're about and that type of thing. Um, they also were left out of the college football playoff last year because they got annihilated against – Iowa last year Uh, so I mean I I get what you're saying and there's a certain degree of truth to what you're saying as far as you know the good teams don't let teams like Ball State stick around they put their foot on the accelerator and they smash them and it just doesn't seem like Notre Dame smashes those teams as often as some of those other teams so so you're on to something there Um, but I I don't think it's a hundred percent true you know I think I could go through and look at um and look at just about every top team and you just pick out a game each year where it's like, well, maybe they didn't lose that game, but they didn't look very good. And, you know, that's just kind of the nature of college football though. And it's, it's different, I think, but like college football, we say every year, like this team looks really good at the beginning of the year. And by the end, it's not, or some team that lost early in the year is really good by the end of the year. It's hard for teams to put together, you know, with a 12, 13 game schedule, um, depending on if you're playing in a um, conference championship game or not, it's difficult for teams to put together that resume where they win. You know, they run the table like that, given that especially at Notre Dame, people have to go to class and I'll just leave that there. So the other part of your question about the quarterback development under Brian Kelly, you know, I, this is one of the things I guess that Notre Dame fans that this has been a narrative, I guess you can say that Notre Dame fans have said basically what you've said a lot. And it's one of the things that I like the least because I think context matters. Certainly. Yes. You know, quarterbacks haven't necessarily developed under Brian Kelly, but can we really point to Brian Kelly as the reason? I mean, you start with Dane Christ and Dane Christ just wasn't very good under Brian Kelly. And it was a weird situation after Charlie Weiss left, but Dane Christ didn't exactly start setting the world on fire when he went back to play for Charlie Weiss at Kansas either. Um, Malik Zaire was a quarterback that didn't develop, but he got hurt. Um, I skipped Everett Golson. Everett Golson was developing. He got Everett Golson to get us to the national championship game. He got himself suspended. Uh, Tommy Reese, I would argue that Tommy Reese developed the most out of any of Brian Kelly's quarterbacks, but he wasn't a great quarterback because, frankly, he just didn't have the physical tools. But And that's kind of, you know, 
I'm a coach, so I can say this, but sometimes when mentally you get it you and physically you're just a little limited, that's why you become a coach. That's why I'm a coach. I mean, I, I thought I was really good at basketball back in the day, um, but wasn't necessarily, and now I coach it. Um, who else? Uh, Deshaun Kaiser. I mean, he was really good. He was um, that first year where he stepped in for Malik Zaire and – then he had a terrible, terrible team the year after that, and he also came back having gained 25 pounds. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know. So, to a certain extent, yeah, um, have has have players developed, quarterbacks developed under Brian Kelly? Not necessarily. Um, but it, I don't think it all comes on Brian Kelly, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So... We'll see. I do think that there is truth, and I'm really up against the time here, so I'm going to wrap this here in a second. Um, I, I do think that there's some truth probably that as as players develop under Brian Kelly, he expects them to do more, and sometimes they just can't. And Brian Kelly doesn't do the best job of pairing it back for them. Instead, he kind of just goes to the next guy. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily know that I blame Brian Kelly for quarterback development. This might be something that I expound on at a different time when I have more time. So anyway, that's, that's it for today's podcast. Like I say, I'm up against the time here. So be on the lookout for us in different platforms as especially, you know, maybe like October rolls around. We're definitely going to be doing some things with YouTube live. We're definitely going to be doing a lot more live shows. We're definitely going to be getting more guests on and that type of thing. I'm excited about what we've got here. You know, the, the numbers indicate that we're on the trend upward. If you could tell a friend about the podcast, go to iTunes, write us a review, do those things that would help. I'm Ben Belden. Um, Follow me on Twitter at bbelden330, underthedomend.com, and all of that good stuff. And until next time, go Irish. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery.